Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we discuss the Salem's Lot-related story, One for the Road, found in Night Shift and also in the illustrated Salem's Lot. Let's start the show! On a cold day in January, several years after the events recounted in Salem's Lot, an out-of-towner named Lumley stumbles into a bar, having left his wife and daughter in his car that ran off the road during a snowstorm. The barkeep and a regular head out with Lumley towards Salem's Lot to rescue the family, despite knowing what might be out there. Ooh. Spooky. Yeah. Sean, this was a short story, like a very short story, but it was a good story. It was like so creepy. I really liked reading this. And it's like scary, but has alluring vampires. Like I, I thought that was a cool touch. The vampires in Salem's Lot seem to just be sort of like dirty. They're just unkempt. Whatever state they were in when they became a vampire, they just continued and they kept getting dirtier and whatever. But this one woman, the wife of the guy who gets his car stuck in the snow, she's like this alluring vampire. Like her hair is flowing and it's this like wonderful imagery. It's like Galadriel in Lord of the Rings, right? Like this ethereal being that's all sort of pale and white and floating in the distance. Either that or Mr. Burns in that episode of The X-Files, Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Comes out of the woods and it's just all like, ah, yes. Yeah, but I agree with you. Totally opposite of the horrifying creatures that we've talked about in the Night Flyer and Salem's Lot. Exact opposite. Yeah. I mean, King's line that uh, describing her is, and her dark hair streamed out in the wild wind like water in a December creek just before the winter freeze stills it and locks it in. Yeah, I mean, I, I might be tempted to follow her into a dark neck of the woods, right? Right. As opposed to like, you know, some somebody with like torn clothes and mud caked on their feet and hands and no, I'm running away from you. Go away, vampire. You're gross. Yeah, I think the one at towards the end of Salem's Lot, the one uh vampire shows up in her like bra and panties. She's not even dressed and I thought she was completely nude. Was she completely nude? I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just nothing but a handbag. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's what I thought. Of course she'd have a bra and panties on if she had a handbag. Uh. <laughs> I mean, come on. This gave me a feel for the Anne Rice vampires. Yeah. Which all had this like sexiness exuding from them i mean it helps that you know tom cruise and brad pitt Pitt played them in the in the movies but like but that's why those those actors were cast in the roles they're supposed to be every single one of these vampires is supposed to be beautiful beyond what is possible as a natural human being right Right. it's it's part of the magic of event of Anne rice's vampires is that they are beautiful and some of it is through selection Lestat chooses Louis because Louis is a beautiful man. Right. To begin with, he doesn't choose someone who isn't, who doesn't look like Brad Pitt. Yes. That was deliberate. Yeah. And just like with Claudia, they chose Claudia because 
or or made her into a vampire because of her beauty. Right. And that's the other character that we really get a a sense of is Claudia in mm. in this story because there's the child that comes up at the end and very childlike and yet still alluring in its own way as a vampire where they're horrified by it but yet oddly drawn to it. And I mean that's always been a vampire trait, right? This charm that mm-hmm. allows them to get invited into the house where they shouldn't be there or to get characters to be their thralls or to get characters to be their familiars and do things is that they have this charm. They exude charisma and are beautiful. And King totally captures that here. Yep. Yeah. And and every vampire universe or ecosystem or whatever you want to call it, like they all do it a little differently. You know, like uh, the Buffy vampires, they usually most of the time look beautiful, but when they're in like full on vampire mode, they turn into this like, you know, more grotesque creature. Mm. Whereas, you know, Rice's vampires are just, they always look the same and they're always beautiful. And King's vampires, they're just undead and they're a mess. Except here. Here's where he veers much more closely to Anne Rice's style of vampire. And I, I think it works well in the story. And I don't think it's a, a contradiction at all to what he's done before. I think it works well. Agreed. And to your point about this being a, a great short story, uh, doing a little research on this, I found a English professor who actually teaches this story in class because he says oh, wow. it's just like a perfect little story just in its language and setting the mood. So I think you really hit on something there. Another sort of theme around this is our heroes in this are the opposite of what they were in Salem's Lot as well. So we've got our two heroes are Ben Mears, a young writer. Mm-hmm. I think we determined he's probably in his early 30s. At the most, yeah. And and his sidekick is a, a young boy, Mark Petrie, who's a teenager. And they're the ones who are fighting against these vampires. And even the their associates, Jimmy Cody, is a young doctor. Mm-hmm. Susan is Susan is young. Matt obviously is not, but of the main characters, they're all young. In this one, it's we've got old men on a final adventure. It's the 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 heroes rushing in are the barkeep and an old timer. And we learn after the, at the story, sort of the framing piece is that the barkeep, you know, died of a heart attack a few years later, and this guy's spending his last year still in fear of Salem's Lot. But like this is it. Like these are old men who've been around the block and knows knows what's going on, but they're still willing to head into the breach, as it were. Right. The old men on their final adventure. Not that this is the end of their lives, but it's like maybe the the one last grand thing that they do like at, at the level of a, a fictional story like this. As talented as King is writing, writing characters who are like in that 11, 12-year-old range, which we've celebrated many times on, on our podcast, he's also pretty damn good at writing like older, like mm. like, you know, 70 80 year old characters like ted brodigan is awesome and mother abigail awesome king has the ability to to i think very effectively realize what it's like to be a person of that age and still be an interesting and and three-dimensional character right and he doesn't have as many pages to work with here but he does a really good job of of giving us a sense of 
who these men are and what it's like to be in their skins for a little bit and how their relative age impacts their ability to be heroes but doesn't stop them from being heroes yeah and when we say heroes reluctant heroes yeah like they're not they're not all in like they know like wait a minute you came from salem's lot are you sure like just up the road like to this direction yeah no uh that's not great dude but okay yeah. we'll we'll help <laughs> you but like we're gonna be very wary and you've got your saint christopher cross right or your saint christopher medal right yeah mm-hmm. you got your cross why don't you go grab a bible or two as well like they're totally aware of what's happening and aren't excited by the prospect of rushing into to be heroes yeah but they're doing what's right Mm-hmm. And that kind of takes us to like another theme of this story, which is people from the city versus people from the country. And King has always done a, a good job at painting the the country folk, the, the the people who are from more remote areas or or people from more rural areas as very much different than people from the city, but by no means are they less than right they're just as smart they're just as capable they're just a, a, as much a force to be reckoned with when pushed into a corner by the aspects of whatever plot that they're involved in but they handle those things differently than somebody from a city and here we get to see those two those two things but right up against each other because the character who gets stuck, the character who makes the terrible mistake that someone from the area never would, is from a is from a big city, and it's a lot of the friction between these characters really surrounds that. It's like, first of all, you're different from us. Second of all, you made a dumb mistake that you shouldn't have, and you wouldn't have if you had known better, like we do. And now we're stuck trying to help you out of your your dumbass mistake. And so it's like it exacerbates that underlying friction that already exists. And not all rural folks are perfect either. Like there's the the dumbass that they talk about who's like, I'll take a bet to go into Salem's lot and Yeah. <laughs> and he's never heard from again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're not all perfect in any way. Uh and King does a good job of of that as well. So one of the things I want to talk about, Jay, is because I made a big deal about it in the last episode about King not getting the the dates right is I think he does get it right in this story. I was a little worried that he didn't at first, but on a second look, I think that this all matches up. So we're told that the story takes place on January 10th. And the characters say that two years ago, Jerusalem's lot burned down. Which makes sense because three years ago they say the lot went bad, and that's how they're explaining to this man like that's why it it isn't all there. And the, the lot went bad, and the town burned flat for three days. So we're given a little insight into what happened after Mark and Ben set the fire that the the town burned for three days, and then Lumley says, "Why didn't they rebuild it?" The townspeople know better as to why it didn't get rebuilt because of the things that have happened. So we could sort of deduce from this, not only is the timeline correct, but that potentially Mark and Ben did not finish the job. Clearly. I mean, the, their fire worked well at, for the fire. Like the whole town burned. Yep. It, it, and it didn't, take, it didn't go out for three days because there was no one there to fight it. Right. And that's exactly what Mark and Ben were counting on. 
but it clearly didn't kill all the vampires. And even if they had, if if they did go back per their initial plan and start st- putting down stakes, so yeah. to speak, there are still vampires in, in Jerusalem's lot three years later. Yep. So what happened to Mark and Ben? Did they just stop and leave? Go back to Mexico? Zewataneo, we hear you calling our name, right? Like, <laughs> uh, Or is it they were overcome one day? They stayed a little bit too close to sundown and yeah. they are now vampires. No, because even with the uh, the framing story, the narrator says, you know, he's still scared of the area. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the sense that it expanded much beyond Salem's Lot. So, you know, maybe there's... Which is interesting. Maybe there's not enough because this town is, you know, just down the road from Salem's Lot and it's not overcome. Although the characters there know not to to go up the road, so that's still haunted. But yeah, it makes you wonder what happened to good old Mark and Ben. Oh, who knows? They probably fell through a thinny. <laughs> now they're spend, spending uh, $100 Nixon bucks. In our last episode, when we were talking about the conclusion of Salem's Lot, I was maybe carrying on a little bit too much about why doesn't the flock of vampires in, in Jerusalem's Lot spread? What's holding them back from just day by day, just expanding their, their radius? Till eventually they just consume all of Maine and then all of New England and Southeast Canada. Why doesn't this continue to spread like any disease, any communicable disease? If every time a vampire feeds off of a human, that human becomes a vampire, the logical conclusion to that is eventually all of humanity will be a vampire. So I don't want to just keep going going on and on about this, but it seems strange to me that this plague is contained to this town and, and remains so three years later. I just have a hard time accepting that. Are the vampires just sitting around waiting for unwary tourists and bad real estate entrepreneurs? Like, is it that? Are they incapable of traveling more than a little distance? I, I don't know. I just, but it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, we know from Ben's notebook that sometimes they just kill the humans, right? Because there's a couple of people who are just found outright dead. But still, it would be the same result, right? If you're either a vampire or you're dead. Yeah. Even the most unaware, just operating on instinct vampire on the outskirts of Salem's Lot is going to maybe travel on foot to this town, right? Walk right into, what's the bar called? Tooks. Oh yeah, walk right into Took's bar and start chomping on people. Well, they'd have to be invited in, but yes, your point remains. Yeah, or somebody walking out of Took's Took's bar into to their car, parking lot. The parking lot is now the buffet. <laughs> Surely this would happen from time to time, and enough so that because of this. Well, now that you've stopped me with the Horn of Eld, maybe we should move on to something more positive and uh, talk about some listener feedback. All right. So our first feedback is from Becky M. on Facebook, who writes, Hello, size, long days and pleasant nights. I was delighted to find your podcast. I've been building up the courage to start one myself, and I just found yours. And may I say, good job. I love it. Hope I could do half as well. Instead of being put off trying my own cast, I said I'd reach out and say congrats on a podcast well done. 
I love the series and all the other King I've read, and you do it a great justice. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Becky. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, don't be put off trying your own podcast. Definitely give it a shot. Get yourself a microphone and just start recording your ideas. Just don't cover the same material as us. Midworld's not big enough for the two of us. Actually, there's plenty of space. And if we could ever guest star on your podcast, we'd love it. We also got a five-star iTunes review from a listener named A Dog Named Sue. Which is a fantastic name. Yeah, it really is. It's Sue spelled like T-Z-U, which is awesome. And A Dog Named Sue says, Great show, guys. You pull some great theories and food for thought. I assume the second read of the series might be even more insightful. Thank you for your five-star review, A Dog Named Sue. Anybody else wants to give us a five-star review or share the love on Facebook? All of our social media information is available in the show notes. And you can leave us an iTunes or Apple podcast review or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Well, we hinted at it before for those careful listeners, but there is a Dark Tower thinny in this short story. Twelve pages to work with. We've actually managed to squeeze out one thinny. And that thinny is the name of the bar. The bar is Took's Bar. And there is a similar place name in Colibrin Sturgis. It's the uh, Took's General Store. So there's a somebody named Took in this story and somebody named Took in Colibrin Sturgis. So there you go. There's your thinny. There's your thinny. If anyone else found any other ones, let us know. But good luck trying it. There's not much here. Yeah. All right. So once again, we want to thank our patrons uh, for supporting our show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to find out more. Sean, let's talk about some fun stuff. Let us. I'll kick us off. There's a great line in here. If there's anyone more purely foolish than a New Yorker, it's a fellow from New Jersey. As someone from New York and the the low-level rivalry that we have with New Jersey, I just find that funny. It's it's a great line. I I think someone from Maine would think it's hilarious that you're taking pride in being better than New Jersey when the point of that quote <laughs> <laughs> the point the point of that quote is is that you're both pretty bad. Yes. If you're from New York, you're terrible, but you're still better than New Jersey. <laughs> no offense to New Jersey, right? I wanted to point out that the item that saves the booth and took from being overcome by the vampires is the Douay Bible. And I wasn't aware of what that was, but it turns out that that is an English translation of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, as opposed to many translations of the Bible, which instead of going to the Latin translation, go to the original Greek sources. Oh, yeah. The original Greek that everybody wrote the Bible in. Or whatever. <laughs> the original non-Latin 
Aramic text and so forth. Right. So that that's the difference between the Duhay Bible, which I was not aware of. But um, it also turns out that not only is it a good um, translation of the Bible, but it is also a good bludgeoning piece of of weaponry to be mm-hmm. to be thrown at child vampires. Which Christian sects would use the Douay Bible? It was written for the Catholic Church, and the purpose of the Bible was to uphold Catholic tradition in the face of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so it was, it was a reaction to the Reformation. Yes, and it was English Catholics who, who wrote it. So they were like pishtosh on the Greek translations. We will go back to the original Latin. They did not want to use the Hebrew and Greek sources. They went straight to the Latin translation. Okay. Makes sense. Often traditional English-speaking Catholics use the Douay Bible, also called the Douay Rhymes Bible. I was curious about this because both Took and Booth seemed to come across as non-Catholics and perhaps not even necessarily Christians themselves. They had deliberately surrounded themselves with the with religious things to be able to fight away vampires. So was this just like a random Bible that they happened to find, like in a bookstore or something like that? Or was this something that they got that, that had been in someone's family, like the Took family for generations? Right. Hard to say. But like the St. Christopher Medal, the Douay Bible, these are things that Protestants in Maine which probably far outnumber Catholics in Maine, would probably not have. So it's interesting that this is perhaps gives us a little bit more insight into who these men were. Yes, I agree. I think that that is part of the point is that they're aware enough that even though they might not be very religious, that they should keep this stuff around just in case. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff item that I had was that we hear about in Ben's journal in the uh, conclusion of Salem's Lot that there was a car crash. Mm. The details of that car crash are very, very similar to the basically the plot of this story, that there's a, a family and their car breaks down. And in the journal entry, for, in Ben's journal entry, it's, there's a, the car breaks down because they like hit something but the people in the car are still alive. They survived the crash, but they're all, their bodies are missing. Yep. So we know what happened. We, we can surmise that, that they were attacked by, by vampires and became vampires themselves and therefore empty car. Anyway, I thought it was kind of cool that this has probably happened multiple times. I don't think that Ben's journal entry actually represents one for the roads story. But this is the kind of thing that's going to happen, right? If you stop long enough, even if it's just to like change a tire in Salem's lot, and if you're in striking distance, you're probably not going to proceed beyond that point. Nope. So our narrator also mentions the author Walter de la Mare, who is not somebody that I was aware of, but King obviously is. And it is because this person is an English writer of supernatural poems, stories, novels especially written for children, Hmm. which seems like it would fit for this type of story. From what I gathered, he wrote a lot of sort of fae, supernatural type stuff that we get that imagery of the 
the mother and the child sort of floating through the snowy landscape with this sort of beautiful look around it. And there is that sort of fairy tale quality to it, even though it's deadly in this story. So mm. I'm guessing that's why Walter de la Mer is mentioned here. Yep. King likes to drop names of uh, authors he admires. And yes. This one fits right in. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we start our coverage of the Eyes of the Dragon. We'll be reading sections 1 through 27. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. All's well that ends well.